Good to see everybody this morning. Um, for those of you who are new, my name's, my name's Todd. I'm one of, the, one of the pastors here. I'm the lead pastor here, and so it's really good having you here this morning. Let me grab a quick drink. Uh, there we go. Whew. <clears throat> but uh, we've been studying the book of Isaiah, which if uh, I hope for all of you, I mean, Isaiah is one of those books you don't enter into lightly. It's like hallowed ground in the Old Testament as you go and you study not only who God is, but, but more importantly, this foretelling the goodness and the greatness of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And so I hope it was, a, it was a good time for you. And I thought, you know what, while we're going through books of the Bible where you tread carefully and cautiously, I thought, why not do the book of Romans next, right? I mean, why not? So we're going to dive into the book of Romans next and uh, explore it together. I hope as we go through it, it'll be like Isaiah for you. You'd realize that there's parts of this amazing book that maybe you hadn't thought of before or, or wrestled with before, but we're going to be there. And uh, let me just tell you this, and going through it, um, this is the Apostle Paul's, what I would say is magnum opus. Of all the letters, and we'll talk about it over the next four weeks as we kind of do a, I'm going to actually do a four-week introduction to the book of, of Romans because I want us to just fall in love with it before we even start studying it together. But it's, it's a letter that, that encompasses the largest declaration of the gospel of any of his letters in, in chapters 1 through 11. Now, I think for a lot of you, when you've heard about it, you probably were like others when you first kind of thought it through. It was a book on, on maybe how I get saved. That's a lot of times how I hear it, is this book on how I get saved. And, and even all the way back to the Puritans, this particular guy, Thomas Drake's, he was a, a Puritan that was alive during the 1700s, and he even said this, the quintessence, and again, leave it to the English to use a word that we have to look up, but kind of think quintessential, the quintessence and perfection, he says, of saving doctrine. And there's no doubt that's a true statement, but I would say this, while that is a true statement, let me just say this to you, I think there is so much more to the book of Romans than just how is a person saved. I think it tells a magnificent story of the greatness and the grandness of God and what he has been doing, is doing, and will do. I think it tells this amazing rhythm of life and how he's created everything. And Paul crafted this letter in a very special way, not to just call us to salvation, but you're going to learn this, I hope, as you study the book of Romans. He's called us to a mission. Now, this book has been encountered by all kinds of different people. One of them is a guy named Augustine of Hippo. Don't you love that name? My, ki my kids laughed when I said that name. My son goes, his last name's Hippo. He started giggling, right? One of the biggest theologians of then probably the 5th century. The church followed his lead for about a 1,000 years. Even to this day, we follow his lead. But his encounter with the book of Romans happened in the city of Milan where he and a friend, Olypius, were hanging out together. And if anybody knows this guy, uh, Augustine, man, he is the epitome, and I would say this, of the caricature of a millennial. He was traveling all over the world for these experiences. He was, he was teaching philosophy, and he was, he was carousing in a lot of ways. He was the epitome also of a sinner. But something happened to him in Milan that was so powerful and so real, and it came from the mouth of a child. As he's hanging out in Milan, all of a sudden he heard these little kids singing, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. And he wondered to himself, is this a game that little kids are playing? And all of a sudden, if you've ever had that moment where the Spirit of God tries to wrestle you and wake you up, he thought, I wonder if God's time to speak to me. 
And he went and grabbed the scriptures and he opened up the Bible and he opened it up and where he came to is in Romans 13, 13. And it just says, let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And at that moment, he said, my eyes were open to the truth. And as they say, I guess the rest is history. Another guy you might have heard of named Martin Luther. He's also, just so you know, if you were to think of a poster child for a millennial, he's also that. So for all of you parents that have kids between the age of 25 and 35, there's hope. For all of those between the age of 25 and 35, I can't wait to see what God's going to do through you if this is the case. Martin Luther also was a man that struggled with sin, but he struggled differently. He wasn't a raging sinner. He was a man that knew he was a sinner. In fact, he went into a monastic lifestyle and all the time struggled over and over with specifically this statement from the book of Romans, chapter 17, where Paul says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In the back of his head, he knew that there was this righteous God who stood above all things and what he deserved forever was God's wrath. And in fact, that statement, the righteousness of God, infuriated him and he began to even, on some levels, hate God. But as he wrestled and wrestled and taught through the book of Psalms and then taught through the book of Galatians and taught through the book of Romans, he suddenly realized that this righteousness of God is not something that I can in any way earn. It is actually something that is given. And for the first time in his eyes, he was opened up to the reality when he says the righteous shall live by faith, that the call of the believer is to now rest in and know and love Jesus Christ and trust in him alone. And from that now, we don't earn the righteousness of God. It's something that's given to us. And again, as they say, the rest is history. Well, probably the guy that intrigues me more than any is this guy named Karl Barth. Now, for most of you, you probably don't even know who this guy is. But actually, this guy became the genetic makeup, the material he created from the book of Romans that allowed the confessing church to stand against Hitler when the Nazis took over. He was a young man, and again, I would say if, if Augustine was the guy that battled with sin and was the carousing sinner, and Luther was the guy that didn't know what to do with himself, he was overwhelmed with his sinfulness, then this guy, Bart, was the guy that was totally disenchanted with the world that he lives in. By the way, three characteristics of what oftentimes is stereotypically applied to those within the millennial generation. Bart was coming out of World War I. He watched as so many of his professors used the Bible and the gospel to convince people to go to war. He began to wonder, is this really what the gospel is about? Somehow coming behind to make Germany the great nation that somehow God had wanted it to be? Is that really what the gospel was about? And it sent him off into a journey. And in fact, as he was with, it, with a group of friends in Soffenville, they were wrestling through the book of Romans. And in wrestling through the book of Romans, all of a sudden he came to the realization that the gospel isn't just about my nation. The gospel isn't all these other things that I'm learning about. The gospel is about the greatness and the goodness of King Jesus and the fact that he's the king, the Kaiser's not. He's the Lord over all things. We will not bend our knee to the Kaiser. We are designed to bend our knee to only one, and that is Jesus Christ. And he wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, which I wouldn't encourage you to read, but that's just a whole other story. 
But that genetic material began to seep out into the church, and a young man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer grabbed a hold of it. And when he grabbed a hold of it, we know this, he led, and in and through the confessing church took a stand for Jesus Christ that was powerful. Now this book, again, when we talk about it, is a powerful, powerful book. It's designed in such a way that to cause us in the back of our head to see something, to wrestle with something. But I would say this, it's bigger than just our salvation. In fact, I would say this, and sorry, I forgot to do that quote. But one of the things that happened in Augustine's life when he was wrestling through this whole idea of Romans, he came to this point, and again, if you've got your phones, this is a phenomenal quote to take a picture of. Good, okay. In wrestling back on his time that he spent in Romans and what it meant to be drawn to God, this is what his prayer was to God. You have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's good. In fact, I would say in many ways, if you were going to encompass the idea of the book of Romans, is that this understanding of this God that designed us, that we weren't made for ourselves, we weren't made to somehow be the center of the universe, that the center of the universe is King Jesus. This is the resonating reality of the book of Romans. In fact, all through it, the one line that can't be denied in the book of Romans is the reality of Jesus Christ and him being King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this is what we're going to look at and explore. And so therefore, if you're somebody in here that's battling with sin like Augustine, I think you're going to encounter the King Jesus that he encountered that's going to show you that what he has to offer is so much greater than the sin to which has you entrapped in life. If you're somebody that constantly is plagued by the reality of your guilt feeling in front of a holy God, I think like Luther, you're going to run into a God who's gracious and forgiving, who now forgives sinners in spite of who we are. And I think the other thing is if you're somebody that's disenchanted with the church, and what's happening, you're going to run into, like Bart did, a God that is bigger than his church. He formed his church. I hope that all of us, that's what we do. Now, what did they have in common? Well, the one thing that they had in common really does have to do with this quote. They ran into a God that they realized that we weren't made for ourselves and our hearts will remain restless until we find our rest in him. Now, this is what Paul was running into, and let's just kind of work this through a little bit. When he started off his gospel, and this is where we got to get to, is he told, he tells us what the gospel is. Now, oftentimes, again, we think of the gospel as how we get saved, but let me, let me try to change that a little bit. It's not less than that, but I would say it's more than that. Paul, when he writes, it says this in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for, look at this, the gospel of God. Okay, now he's going to explain it to us which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning who? His Son. The good news of the Bible is Jesus. This is the good news. He tells us then the good news about it. He was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of His name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He says this is what it's all about. This is it. We're here to be a people of Jesus. 
It's why we talk about Jesus and sing about Jesus. It's why we talk to those that know Jesus and those that don't know Jesus. Everything about this life centers itself around Jesus Christ. And I would say this is the rhythm of what it's all about. And this is why Paul says an amazing statement in there that he has the intent now to bring to bear the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. He said, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help people understand this faith. And I would say it this way, that leads to an obedience for the sake of the name of all the nations. That's what I'm trying to do. This is it. Now, what does that all mean? Glad you asked. The entire book of Romans, in a lot of ways, is set up kind of like almost music. In fact, I would say this, and this is where I kind of skipped over here. He starts off with this amazing statement that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, what? Unto salvation for everyone who, what? Believes to the Jew first and then also to the Greek for in it. And this is the thing that he was at. And the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He then launches off to begin to explain what the problem is. And if those of you know music very well, and I don't, so I had to look all of these different things up. In Romans 1.18 through 3.20, the way that Paul's going to weave this together is inside of this idea of just remorse and death. In fact, I think if he were writing this song, he would write it in the key of A-flat major. Well, why? A-flat major, if for anybody that knows anything about music, is what's called the key of the grave. Right after laying out this reality of the coming Jesus, he wants us to know that humanity sits in a terrible predicament. It's a song that tells a story of Gentiles and of Jews, meaning every single human, the Gentile, though he does not have the reality of God, he has all of creation and sitting into all of creation, this humanity doesn't no longer seek the creator. Instead, he finds his hope in the creature. And in that, it says in there, the righteousness of God is revealed and the consequences of that is that God will pour out his wrath. The Jew then might think, well, then I'm okay. But staying in A-flat measure in this key of the grave, he reminds the Jews that while they might have the very oracles of God from the top of their head to the bottom of their toes, just like the Gentiles, they're in a terrible predicament. In fact, my hope is as you read it, you're going to read this and go, what must we do? Now in this beautiful moving music then, Paul gets to the very end in 320 and he suddenly, he's going to shift keys. He's no longer talking about now in the key of the grave. And this is the way I would put it. He moves to D major, the key of hallelujah. If you've ever heard anything hallelujah, suddenly this is where this kind of in your mind has to be. He begins to write now about King Jesus who's come. And in coming now, he's presented them a means in a way, not in and of themselves, but totally of him, whereby which they can know God. And the way that they come, he beckons back to the story about a guy named Abraham and how Abraham encountered God. He didn't encounter him by any other way than but through faith, trust. Moving it along then, he feels like he has to kind of explain it out. And so chapter five, he goes over to B flat major, which is the hopeful key. He starts to tell the reality that while we were still sinners, though, what? Christ, he died. 
He paved this amazing way now for us to be able to know him. The song moving itself along now in this key of hope, telling people that while you are currently in the position of Adam, you now, through faith, can be in the, in the, in the, in the line of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, and everything begins to change. Not only does your salvation change, your position change, but God begins to change all of you, this longing that humanity has had forever. It weaves and it bobs through people that say, oh man, but I still battle and struggle with sin. What is it that I'm supposed to do? And in chapter 7, he reminds us again, you can't do anything, but praise be to God, he is the one who rescues us. And then he begins to tell a story that not only does he change us, but in chapter 8, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we get to call the God of the universe, Father. That is crazy. As it's sitting up at this high level, though, he then in chapter 9 works in a new key. If he was in the hopeful key of B-flat major, now he moves to a minor key, C minor. And in telling this story, he begins to tell them about a love that God had for his people, the people of Israel. A love that wouldn't quit, a love that was covenantal, that he, he made an agreement with them and he loved them deeply. He loved them faithfully. He wouldn't quit loving them. And the question in the back of our heads that everybody then asks is what happened? Well, sometimes in this, there is a declarative love that loves people, but there's also the lament of what happens when you're not loved in return. But as Paul weaves this together, he says, but that didn't stop our God. It's this story that just works its way through. It's the rhythm of how we work as a people of God. It's the, it's the melody that works its way all throughout the scriptures. It's with the way I would say it. It's kind of the way is our, our song. It's what we dance to. It's what we sing to. This entire revealed truth of God is beckoning us and calling us to forgo all these other things and to learn what is the rhythm and the melody of the song to which God has put in there. And there's something about it as we begin to look out in this world and understand this world in our restlessness. When we finally begin to understand that song and live that song and live that song, something happens inside of us that finally we find our rest in Jesus. That's what he's weaving together. Now, the question in the back of my head then, and I think this is a normal thing for this, why is it then that we don't hear that song? What happens to us? All throughout time, we see this with the people of Israel. They forgot the song. The church forgets the song. Why? Well, I'd say out there, and I got to go there, because there's loud noises, what? Everywhere. Now, I don't recommend that you watch the Anchorman. But anybody that's ever watched the Anchorman before, in this particular scene, they're arguing over whether or not there could be a female uh, correspondent or, or uh, anchor person. And everybody's arguing back and forth, and all of a sudden, Steve Carroll just walks up in front of all of them and goes, loud noises everywhere. We don't hear our song because it's just so stinking busy out there. When humanity fell, what entered into it was just all these other noises from everywhere. And what Paul's going to do in Romans 12, 1 through 2, and that's what we're going to look at today to kind of begin what it is that Paul's trying to do with this particular book, is we're going to answer the question, how do we hear 
that melody? How do we hear that rhythm? How is it that I continue to hear what God is doing? How is it that I hear the song of the church? Now, here's what he says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that now you'll be able to discern what the will of the, what God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now let's think about this. One of the first things he brings up is the mercies of God. And let me just say it to you this way, off the front end. If you're going to be somebody that truly hears what God wants you to do, that understands what it is that, that we're called to be about, that if you are really that person, one of the biggest things that you will find out about yourself is you will understand these mercies of God. Now, what are those? Well, the mercies of God takes us all the way back into chapter 11 where it's talking about this God who's rescued humanity and called us to something big. In fact, he's been talking about the mercies of God all throughout there. Chapter 9, he begins to talk about this people of Israel that God poured down his mercies upon them and invited them into not only his family, but to be a part of who he was. What was the problem? They rebelled against him, but our God is faithful. In fact, all throughout the Bible, this is what you learn, is that we know that God is this one who loves, or we know that for those who, excuse me, love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Here's the big thing. If God is for us, what? Here's what we have to understand. If I'm going to hear the voice of God, if I'm going to know what it is that he's doing, if I'm going to hear his song, if I'm going to understand this rhythm, I have to believe deep within me, and all of us as a church have to believe deep within us, that we can trust him wholeheartedly. God never reveals his song, never reveals his will to those that don't hear his, or that don't trust him. Now, this trust is an interesting reality, isn't it? It's not just to trust him with our salvation. Again, it's, it's not that alone, but it's so much more. It's learning to trust God with every facet of who we are. In fact, that's the way he's going to start to weave this together. It's not that we learn to trust God with just our future destiny or with our morality or maybe 10% of our money. It's the learning to trust God with everything. It's the trusting of God with our children when they seem to be going off the deep end. It's the trusting of God when my spouse seems to not love me anymore. It's the trusting of God when I lose my job. It's the trusting of God when I'm dealing with sickness. It's the trusting of God when I'm not sure what to do with money. It's the trusting of God of every facet of my life. He's teaching us and showing us what it means to trust him above all things. And the reason that we can trust him is because he's king. He's got us. And you'll see this over and over in the Old Testament. When God's people did not trust him, they couldn't hear him. In order for us to hear God, in order for us to hear that melody, that song that is our song and that rhythm of who we are, I have got to be one and I've got to be a part of a people who learns to trust him. That's the first thing. You'll never hear God, you'll never hear that music until you learn to trust him. So what's the second thing? And I love this one. He throws out this idea of to present your bodies as a sacrifice to God. 
Now, if the first thought that comes into mind probably is just this reality, right? Of a bunch of priests out there taking animals, killing them, and putting them onto an altar. Now, really, I think what he's going at, if the first one has to do with trust, the second one has to do with, in this committed relationship together now, it is learning to give God everything. Now, in this giving of everything, in that context, they would kill an animal, and that was the way in which we demonstrated our trust and our need in God. But Paul's going to tell us to do something different. Look what he says. I'm going to call you to be a living, a holy, and an acceptable sacrifice. What does this mean? Well, the difference between this sacrifice is is that it is not a dying sacrifice. It's living. In fact, he's not calling us now to trust him with dead things. He's calling him to trust us with every facet and fabric of our life. He's calling us now to devote ourselves to him and say to God, with every inch of who I am, I am not only trusting you, but I'm going to now learn to not die for you. In fact, I always hear people say this. I would die for Jesus, and that's awesome, but I want to know how many of us will actually live for him. I see so many people say, would you die for him? And, I would really, and again, that's a great question. But really the question of the church is, will you live for him? Well, you live for him again, not in these things, not in just everything, but, or, not, or not in the small things, but in everything. In fact, the way that he's talking about his living is learning how in every facet of who I am, learning in this committed relationship that I have with him to be able to give everything. In my marriage, in my parenting, in my friendships, in my job, in my money, in my house, in my neighborhood. It's learning the lordship of Jesus and saying to Jesus, this is your neighborhood, God. Allow me to now join you in whatever way you've called me to do in your neighborhood. These are my kids. God, allow me to join you in whatever way you've called me, my kids. This is my spouse. This is my workplace, God. May I be and have the heart of Joseph to come in here and bring to bear the goodness of who you are in this. God, everything is yours. May we put it on display for you. And God's point is, is that you will never hear my voice until you come to him and say, I'm called to now live for you in every place. No place is not where I'm not called to be. And then he throws out this word, holy. Wow, that's a word. I think the word holy is something that we shuck and jive with nowadays. Holy isn't just that I'm clean. I think that's sometimes what we think with the word holy, that we're clean. But when Paul throws out this word holy, he means something so much bigger. In fact, this is what he's saying, to be set apart. Your mind. This is what, again, Augustine comes comes to. He realizes as he's wrestling through all these facets of life that he wasn't created for himself. He was created for God. He was created to know him and love him and to follow him, to make much of his life in front of him. In other words, now, it's not just that I'm going to live for you, God, in front of everything, but to understand it's about you. It's, it's yours. I am one set aside to make much of you. That's my goal. But it's not just that. It's something even bigger. Because the problem with living sacrifices, as D.L. Moody said, is they have a tendency of crawling off the altar. To be holy says, I will put myself right back up there. God, this life is about you. And when we move to this last word, acceptable, this one all kind of ties it together. It means not only that we're all his and that we're called to live him out in front of everyone that we are, but now there's this other side of acceptable, which has to do with now we don't give him second best. 
In fact, in the book of Malachi, this was one of the arguments that he's making is that God's people had gotten to the point where they were going to bring the blind lambs and the, and the crippled lambs. They were going to bring the bulls and the goats that kind of were the off-colored ones. And this is what he says in verse 8. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, that ought not evil. When you offer those who are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, we don't toy around with God. We bring him our best. And listen to me, you will not hear God, you will not hear the music of what he's doing in this world, you will not hear the rhythm until you give yourself to giving your best to God. Then he says this statement in it, because this is what you're called to do. See, oftentimes we do, and I've said this before, we understand what we've been saved from, and I want us to get that. I want us to understand that we are saved from sin and we're saved from death and we're saved from the grip of Satan. We're saved from ourselves. But because the church has not done a good enough job of reminding us what we are saved for, sometimes we just have a tendency to forget. The way that Paul kind of expresses this in his own life is he says he's been called to this priestly service. In fact, the idea is is that he's now a priest and he's operating amongst the Gentiles in such a way because anytime we encounter the temple, the idea was is this is the meeting place between man and God and he saw himself as like this priest doing everything that he could to help this specifically the Gentile world to know God and love God and follow God. And that's why I said, I'm, I'm trying to bring the Gentiles, look at this word, to obedience. Now, that sounds strange. What does that mean? That word obedience is broken down into, into two words. One is hupo, which means under, and the other word is akuo, which means to listen. In other words, what he's saying in there is he's coming amongst these Gentiles in the hope that they will come under God and listen to him. I want you to listen. He's looking out at this world that was created by God and created humanity to know him and love him and fellowship with him. And because of sin, humanity has fallen away. But yet God, we know this through creation and through his word, is screaming out all over them, begging humanity to listen to him, to cry out to him, to know him, to come and not just hear, but listen. I remember when I first got married, I'd never heard this before, but I guess this is kind of a popular statement. My wife walks up to me and she says, Todd, I know you hear me, but you don't listen. Have you ever heard that one before? Liars. In other words, humanity might be hearing, but are they listening? Listening has to do with this idea of taking it in and processing it. He said, my hope is to come before all the nations and to present this great Jesus as king for who he is, that they might forego living the life that they're a part of and to realize they weren't created to make a name for themselves. They were created to make a name for God. They were created to see Jesus in all of his grand glory and that they would then repent in front of this holy God and they would then listen and follow wherever he goes. Remember Jesus when he was talking in John 10? He said, my sheep, what? You know, that word is actually listen. They listen to my voice and they do what? They follow me. He said, and I want you now all to do the same thing. I want you to be a group of people that understand that we have a God that we can trust wholeheartedly. I want you to live in such a way that you can, you can give everything to him. 
You can choose to be a living sacrifice and you can live it out in all facets of your life. You don't have to become a holy man like me because you are already set apart as holy in the world. He wants moms that are at home to live holy. He wants husbands in their workplace or in their jobs or in the soccer field or moms as they're out working in the workplace. They want them to live out there for me. I want you to live differently in your community. I want you to be a stark example of, of, a, of a life that has been created and changed by me. I want you to be different, not to be weird like Christians often do, but to be different, to be that appeal to the world that our God, King Jesus, reigns. I want you to parent different. I want you to handle your money differently. He's saying to them, this is what we're about. We are to be this place in which humanity can encounter God. And I'll say this, the moment Cornerstone quits being a church for the lost of our community to encounter God, let's nail the door shut and call it quits. We're called to something huge. So what do we do? He says, well, it's important in this now that you've got to understand who to listen to. In one case, he says, don't be conformed. In the other case, he says, be transformed. And the idea is, is conform means to be kind of pressed into something. Don't allow yourself to be pressed into something. But he said, I want you to allow something to begin to happen to your mind. He says, I want you to say no to this age, this age that is telling us to find everything now. I sat down the other day and, and I was thinking through this. Have you ever noticed that our planning is way too short-circuited? I remember one time somebody saying to me this. They said, you know, people tend to create five-year plans and 10-year plans. How many people create a 1,000-year plans? My wife and I began to discuss this out. What does it look like now to live in such a way where the age doesn't define how we think through things, but instead we're transformed by this renewal of our mind to begin to think differently about this world that we live in? It's kind of like what happened with Isaiah. We're given eyes to see things differently. Now, the question is, how do we do that? Well, I don't know how many of you ever have been to a silent disco before. Has anybody ever been to a silent disco? Oh, you haven't? So in a silent disco, everybody walks in and they're given a different pair of headphones. And you can see on there, kind of as you look at it, and I don't know if this works. Yeah, there, no, is it there? I don't know. Anyways, if you look on there, see how some of them are green and then some of them are blue and then some of them are red headphones? Everybody see that? So they come into this dance place and they get the color headphones they want and it's absolutely silent on the dance floor, but everyone is dancing to the music that they're with. So I walked in there and so I put my ear up to one of them, right? And it was kind of classic rock, you know? And so there's a group of them like dancing like this, you know? And, but again, no music going on, and you're just watching this, and some of the people kind of go like this, right? And all the people that are in red headphones kind of start to gather around each other, you know, and kind of do this, and I almost fell over. But that's, kind of the, that's why you, when you're 47, you shouldn't do that. But there's this side, right? And then the blue people, I put it on, and it was totally Michael Jackson. Dun, 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 dun. You know, so they're over there. Dun, 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 dun. You know, they're, they're like dancing around. And then there was another color that was there, which was so funny. It was kind of like, you know, a German club music. So that's going on. But nobody knows what everyone else is listening to. But here's these bodies. <laughs> 
And they're just going crazy. Now, there's a point to this. Paul says, don't listen to that. It's chaos. I mean, it was funny. I've got video, but I can't show you the video because some things were said in the video that weren't good. But, oh my gosh, it's chaos. See, what Satan loves to do is to get us to listen to all kinds of noises. Remember I threw that picture up of Steve Carroll? It's just so loud. The God of this age, Satan, loves nothing more than to get headphones on this person and headphones on this person and headphones on this person. And all the while then, he then takes and the blue headphone people kind of hang out and the red headphone people hang out and the green headphone people hang out. And they get all together in the midst of dancing to the beat of this age. They miss the reality of this amazing song that's going on in this world right now that's orchestrated by God. He says, you have to make it a point to learn to shut that one down. His point being, you will never hear the voice of God if that one is screaming in your ears. Now, it can come across in all kinds of different ways. But he said also, there's this other song that's being sung that is God's song that can only be heard by the transformed mind. It's the mind of one who belongs to me. The other day, my wife and I were together, and um, we had our youngest one, Jason, and he kind of got lost. And I could hear him over there going, Mom, Mom, Mom. You know, and he's just echoing it out. And I'm kind of giggling a little bit. And all of a sudden, Lisa said something to me. And instantly, Jason heard her voice. Just came to her. Why? Because that was Mama. The whole point of what he's doing throughout the book of Moromans is to teach us the voice of the Father. That voice that in the midst of everything that's going on, we hear that one voice. We hear this one that says there where Jesus was able to say, my sheep listen to my voice and they follow me. They get it. But what's so crazy about it, it's not just that we learn it right away. In fact, he says that by testing you may discern, which means together we have to learn how to hear that voice. Most people don't know this, but within the mother's womb, the reason that they hear mom's voice is because nine months, they hear it and hear it and hear it over and over again. It becomes the place then, even when they're young, that mama's voice as she nurses them and takes care of them and loves them and starts to understand, this one cares about me. It's now full circle to where we started. I have to learn to trust God that he's good. I have to learn that in this relationship, he's called me to something bigger than I even know. He's called me to give my life for it. He's called me to stop listening to the world in this age that's sitting there going all over the place and just hear my voice. And he says in there that hearing it, it's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. In fact, the whole book of Romans is about this. This reality of what God is doing is good. It's good for you. It's well-pleasing. It's what brings a smile to the heart of the Father. It's what is perfect. It's what shapes me and molds me into the man or the woman that God wants me to be. And so here's the question I have for Cornerstone today. Do you want to hear the voice of God? Do you want to? 
In order to hear the voice of God, though, we've got to work together, because again, this takes time, on what it means to trust him wholeheartedly with everything that we are. We have to learn together what it means to devote our lives to him. Why? Because we struggle all the time. I mean, yesterday, even, man, I battled. I got home, and I knew my day needed to be about serving my wife and my kids. But gosh darn it, college football's on. I mean, you think about it. Tonight is the Lord's Supper, and it's the opening game between the Steelers of Pittsburgh and that other team from New England. We learn this. We learn what it means then to hear his voice. And my question to you all is do you want to hear it? Because over the next few weeks, what we're going to do with the book of Romans as we begin to lay this out is we are going to learn that incredible song of God. We're going to learn to hear it over and over. We're going to learn to get into the rhythm of it together. We're going to learn what that beat sounds like. We're going to together begin to learn, and all of this now, as it works its way out, this rhythm is what beckons us back to be God's people. I don't know how many of you enjoy jazz music. I know I've been talking a lot about music today, but that's okay. You won't have to hear it next week. But a friend of mine one time said, would you like to go to a jazz club with me? Now, for me, jazz is like blah. I know, forgive me. But it's like, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to, I don't get it. And he goes, just trust me, come with me. So I went with him, right, and we're sitting together, and we're kind of at this table, and this man was playing an incredible percussionist, a, a stand-up bass, and, and then a guy on the keys. And, and he goes, what you need to listen for, Todd, is you need to connect the melodic tone and the major rhythm that goes through it. He goes, if you can hear those, you will begin to understand jazz music. I said, fine, and they did their first song, and it was, it was all over the place, and I'm just like, dude, you're losing me. He goes, now watch this on this next song. On my leg, he just started to tap the rhythm. And every time they went all over the place, they always came back to this rhythm. And then they also began to just hum the melody in my ear. And he would, you know, so it would be, dun, 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 dun. And that's what the whole song was, that rhythm. And dun, 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 dun. And all of a sudden, I heard Jazz. No matter where they went, all over the place, I could still hear that melody that was kicking through that entire song and that rhythm that was there. In other words, God's music is jazz. No, just, no. Once we understand God's melodic tone and his rhythm, no matter what happens, we can always come back to that. And so let me ask this one more time, Cornerstone. Do you want to hear God? And if so, well, let's go. Amen? God bless you.